In four 15-minute dialogues, we're going to explore the question, what is tragedy? So this isn't some kind of encyclopedic survey. It's much more a kind of personal response to some key issues to do with tragedy, which inevitably include some pretty old chestnuts. Now, my name is Oliver Templin. I'm a professor at Oxford University. And for much of my career, I've worked on ancient Greek tragedy. And my name is Joshua Billings. I'm a graduate student in classics at Oxford, and I'm writing my dissertation on the history of ideas around tragedy, and particularly about the 18th and 19th century. So it makes sense that we start with defining tragedy. Defining tragedy. Can, can we give a definition? What does, the, what does the word mean? Well, the word is a very common one. I mean, we see it in the newspapers every day. Distressing stories, especially stories involving death, whether they're accidents, or whether they're natural disasters, whether people are to blame or not to blame, are called tragedies. And you can see this in the news the whole time, this use of tragedy. Or, or you get people's lives described as a tragedy, even, even as a Greek tragedy. The career of Marlon Brando was a Greek tragedy. Bill Clinton was inevitably enacting a Greek tragedy. And it's quite interesting, I think, that journalistic use of Greek tragedy, because it points to two things. It points to the centrality of drama, of theatre, to the core notion of tragedy, and it points to ancient Greece, where this kind of theatre was developed, initially in Athens, in the years, the decades following about 500 BCE, or BC if you prefer, and it remained an obsession with the Greeks and the Romans for the best part of a thousand years. And the Greek plays remain a kind of touchstone, or, or at least a point of comparison for all other discussions of tragedy and tragic theatre. And it makes the point that theatre is core to defining tragedy, and that it was invented, tragedy was invented for performance in front of an audience. And just to remind you of some of the canonical names from Greek tragedy, the Oresteia of Aeschylus, the Oedipus and Antigone of Sophocles, the Medea and Bacchae or Bacchant women uh, of Euripides. These are classics um, in more than one sense of the word, and they're, they're, they're canonical. Now, that might make it sound as though tragic theatre has been continuous or stable ever since the ancient Greeks. And it certainly went through the Roman Empire, which left the plays of Seneca, the tragedies of Seneca, which were hugely influential in the 16th and 17th centuries and are still performed. But it shouldn't obscure the fact for about a thousand years, between about 400 CE or AD, as it's also known, between about 400 and 1400, tragedy more or less died out, and tragic theatre more or less died out. And then it was reborn in the Renaissance, which rediscovered Seneca and gradually rediscovered the Greeks. Tragedy continues to be, ever since the Renaissance, an obsession. So, confronted with such a long history, one that goes back 2,500 years, the question obviously arises with so much variation, so much change, has there any core definition remained? Is there, is there anything that we can call um, the core of tragedy or, or a canon of tragedy? Well, when we think about a canon of tragedy, we think about a, a set of works that are 
that are immutable that that have been played again and again over time but the fact of of the matter is that a canon changes over time as new works are written as works fall out of taste and so the canon today looks very different than the canon a hundred years ago not only because we have a hundred years more literary history but because we're a hundred years different readers and viewers of tragedy so since the the renaissance we could think not only of, of the english tragedies that we're most familiar with shakespeare marlowe johnson middleton and and dozens of of lesser tragedians but we could also think of french works racine corneille and through the 18th century a flourishing and incredibly fruitful tradition of tragedies that are practically never performed with a couple of exceptions in english or even in french for the most part and we could also think of the spanish renaissance the works of calderon and lope de vega which are similarly the fruits of an incredibly active tradition but a tradition that that in anglophone countries has largely died out and is even pretty rare to see performed again in hispanophone countries the renaissance also created opera one of the maybe most lasting legacies of greek tragedy from the time of a florentine camerata around 1600 we've had a, a genre of musical works that approximate some aspects of greek tragedy much better than spoken drama because they are sung and danced just like greek tragedies were and in origin in the time of monteverdi actually a conscious attempt to reconstruct greek tragedy absolutely and yeah. and every couple of hundred years opera composers have to go back to the Greeks when they feel that operas become decadent. If you think of Glocker Wagner, that's a that's a constant a constant resort in opera to go back to the Greeks and, and look for tragedy. And then since the Renaissance we have a, a major change in in simply who gets depicted in tragedies. And in the eighteenth century and from the eighteenth century to today, tragedies can depict relatively normal people. Uh, bourgeois tragedies and it can depict them speaking relatively normal speech so a change from verse tragedy to prose tragedy and that genre begins with uh, Lillo with Diderot with Lessing in the 18th century and continues straight through Ibsen arguably Chekhov to Arthur Miller's tragedies one of which just reopened on Broadway in a very popular production and then in the 20th century we have we have even further transformations the political works of, of Brecht Artaud's theater of cruelty and maybe most importantly Samuel Beckett's plays which mix tragedy and comedy in in quite fascinating unusual but I would say still still tragic ways so the canon what you think of as a tragic canon depends on a definition of tragedy but at the same time a definition of tragedy depends on what we consider a tragic canon. Yeah, and I suppose we're, we're going to have to face the fact that uh, maybe we're not going to find any way of defining tragedy in such a way as to include all, all this extraordinary variety and this richness and difference. And yet it's a fact, isn't it, that there's been a persistent desire to try and find a core, to try and find 
a definition. And some ages have found it in one way and others in another. I mean, some ages have seen the essence of tragedy in the shape of the plot, in its form, to do, uh, in the tragic fall and the ending in death, and have tended to combine that with following formal constraints. Mm -hmm. And at this point, we have to introduce Aristotle's Poetics, the most influential work of criticism of drama ever written. One might say it's over-influential, but its importance just can't be underestimated. Aristotle was the most amazing mind. He studied everything, and among the things he studies were how does poetry work, how does drama work, how do you do it best, and we have his, his poetics as the foundation text in the theory and practice of theatre. And that comes through above all in, in the unities with a big U, which are, I think, probably an, uh, in origin, an over-rigid interpretation in Renaissance of Aristotle. But these unities would lay down that there must be a unity of time, that it must be, all happen within 24 hours, that it must all be set in a single place, and that there must be a unity of action, although quite what that is is not so so clear. This all seems rather remote to us now, but I, I, am I not right that that was at one time regarded as the core essential? For, for a couple of hundred years, that was the way people tried to define tragedy, and it led to lots of debate about whether the, the unity of time could be stretched to more than 24 hours, or whether the unity of action could include a subplot or two subplots and, and, and just how far those unities went. It led to a huge amount of debate uh, in, in France particularly, but also in England and in Germany. And yet there was something unsatisfying about it as people looked to works of tragedy that did not obey the unities, but were nevertheless incredibly powerful, moving, and in some sense tragic. Shakespeare, most of all. Yeah, I suppose Shakespeare's the, in some ways the key here. I mean, it's an interesting question, isn't it, to what extent was Shakespeare aware of the neo-Aristotelian unities? I always think of the thing in the prologue of Henry V when the prologue says, so we're going to scatter things all in time and place, um, and asks the audience to give it their thoughts, and carry the characters carry them here and there, jumping at times. And that seems to be Shakespeare actually saying, look, I'm not going to obey the unities of time and, and place. At any rate, the fading out of the unities as a central notion does synchronize with the great rediscovery of Shakespeare at, uh, at the beginning of the 19th century, end of the 18th century, perhaps not so much as a discovery as kind of promoting him from being this kind of a wild barbarian genius into being the, the central figure in the history of of, uh, of tragic theatre. Mm -hmm. And that's also the time that people start thinking about tragedy in, in different terms, because if, it's, if tragedy it does not mean a following a set of rules, there must be something that connects Shakespearean tragedies and Greek tragedies. And one of the ways to understand that and to describe it was by saying that Shakespearean tragedies create some kind of effect that Greek tragedies also create. And we might think of the same thing today, that watching Ibsen's Hedda Gobbler makes us feel in some way not so differently from Shakespeare and Sophocles. And if, and if we're going to describe tragedy and define tragedy, we could think of doing it based on 
tragedy's effect rather than on tragedy's form. And then I suppose the audience then becomes the, the central defining feature, the experience of the audience con confronted with the tragedy rather than the form of the tragedy it, it, itself. Uh, and I think, I mean, I don't know for me, that still makes sense. It's an approach, the approach through the audience and what the tragedy means to the audience is something that I think uh, many of us would still want to maintain. The tragic theatre somehow quintessentially to do with the emotions aroused in the audience. And uh, if it doesn't make you cry, then it's not going to be good tragedy. And that goes right back to the Greeks who, who did put a lot of emphasis on, on weeping. And to return as one has to, whether one likes it or not, to Aristotle, there's the pity and fear, which are picked out by Aristotle in his poetics as central emotions uh, in the audience. I think this, I mean, I would take a step further back and say there's something essential to, to humanity, to, to being human, in the ability to feel for, to feel with fellow humans. It's said, I, I'd love to know whether this is really true, it's said that weeping and laughing are activities only done by humans. I mean, one can see analogies in animals, but actually laughing and weeping and laughing and weeping with are um, specific to humans. Well, I, I mean, I certainly want to say that the range of emotions in the audience goes well beyond pity and fear. There's a, a huge range of anger and indignation and uh, nostalgia and desire and anticipation. I would want to say that tragedy arouses a complicated mixture of emotions and a complicated sequence of emotions. But it does lead us to the question, does this make tragedy a purely emotional experience? I mean, is that what tragedy is all about, just the, the feelings, the emotions of the audience? And is it a kind of a bath uh, of emotions? Is it a total immersion um, experience? And that, I think, uh, actually is a question that will lead us nicely into our, our second uh, dialogue, uh, which is to do with what does tragedy do for people. So we'll end this first one on that note of is tragedy essentially um, to do with the emotional experience of the audience? Is it only an emotional experience?